Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit and the gift of your word in the Bible. We pray this morning that you would indeed open our eyes so that we would meet with Jesus and know what it is to live for him today in our lives. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, sometimes the most mundane moments can change everything. Could the decision to eat a sandwich, for example, ever change the world? Well, most sandwiches consumed in the history of the world probably couldn't support that claim. But there was one in 1914 that did. In 1914, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had occupied Serbia a few years earlier. And uh, the 28th of June was the Feast of St. Vitus, on which Serbian nationalists celebrated a 14th century victory over Turkey. The 28th of June was also the wedding anniversary of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And he chose to celebrate his wedding anniversary by riding in a car with his wife, Sophie, through the streets of Sarajevo in order to inspect the Austro-Hungarian troops. Now, a group of Serbian nationalists chose this as the moment to strike against the occupying empire. But their attack didn't quite go as planned. First, Nedjelko Kabrinovic threw a hand grenade at the motorcade. Uh, It exploded, but it failed to cause any significant damage apart from panic in the streets. Kabrinovic promptly took a cyanide capsule and threw himself off a bridge into the river to evade capture. But the cyanide capsule was past its best before date and failed to work. And the river was only 10 centimetres deep. And he was soon pulled out by the police and arrested. The other conspirators scattered. And one, Gavrilo Princip, took himself off to a local cafe where he sat down outside and ordered a sandwich presumably in order to reflect on the bungled assassination. Meanwhile, the motorcade had taken refuge and the decision was finally taken for the Archduke to go to the hospital to visit those who'd been wounded in the first attack. The car he was in took a wrong turn down a side street and ended up at the cafe where Princip was eating his sandwich. When Princip saw the car He did not hesitate in seizing the opportunity he'd been given. He took out his gun, he fired two shots which hit Franz Ferdinand and then his wife Sophie. They both died within minutes. And within weeks the whole of Europe had been drawn into World War I, as we well know. Is that the most significant sandwich in history? We often think of uh, history as a series of great decisive events but it is just as much comprised of moments that at the time would seem utterly insignificant and yet changed everything. There's a danger we can make the same mistake when we consider the Christian life. We hear of dramatic stories of people coming to faith, great crises and miracles of belief, great victories over sin and temptation, and we look at our own lives And we wonder if they measure up. We make great resolutions about how things are going to change. I'm going to get up early and I'm going to read the Bible and pray for an hour every morning. I'm going to read more Christian books. I'm going to be more open about being a Christian and share my faith with my colleagues. 
perhaps after last week's sermon on chapters 5 to 7, we we, we say, I'm going to win the battle with lust once and for all. It's going to happen. This is what one writer, Paul Tripp, calls big drama Christianity. Big drama Christianity. It sees that the Christian life as a series of crises, big decisions, and we lurch between them, waiting expectantly for the next moment of drama. But he points out that the reality of life is rather different. We know that few smokers quit because of one moment of resolve to stop smoking. Few people become slim and healthy because of one dramatic commitment to eat healthily and do more exercise. Few marriages are changed by one dramatic resolution. Life is not a series of dramatic events. It's mostly a mundane process. And it takes place right here and now, just while we're getting on with living our lives. Paul Tripp argues that the the problem with big drama Christianity is that it causes us to devalue the significance of the little moments, the everyday, when we actually do the living of our lives. The moments day by day where our sin is exposed, the state of our hearts is revealed, and we have the chance to seize God's grace for change or else continue in our old ways. The reality of life is that a sandwich is never just a sandwich. Not necessarily because it could start World War III, but because every moment of every day is a chance to say yes or no to going God's way or going my way. And it's in and through those moments that God works to make us more like Jesus. And this is something that Proverbs helps us with as we look at chapter 6. We saw last week that the general message of chapters 5 to 7 is about the big drama of sexual faithfulness. You know, the big drama of how someone ends up committing adultery. What's going on in a Christian's heart when they marry a non-Christian. As well as issues around lust and pornography, which are always big drama issues for Christians. But here in the middle of those chapters, we suddenly find ourselves addressing the apparently mundane financial arrangements, your attitude to timekeeping, how you speak to other people. These are the mundane moments of everyday life. But if you remember, it's in everyday life, as we've seen in our series in Proverbs, that wisdom fills in the gaps that the law cannot cover. See, the law can tell you Do not commit adultery, as we saw last week, but you can't legislate for how you approach your finances or how you spend your time. But just because there is no law on these things doesn't mean they don't matter. Every area of our life matters before God. Every moment is a moment where we choose to go his way or our way. And if he does not rule the moments and the details, he does not rule at all. And that's why Solomon turns to these issues here with his son. We get a taste here of some of the things that are covered in the rest of the book. You know the chapter 10 onwards where you get the kind of verse by verse kind of random, almost seemingly random aphorisms and proverbs that fill the rest of the book, covering all kinds of different real life situations. And it's a bit like that here, kind of taste of that. So there's a progression in these verses if you look, a kind of 
crescendo through the three stanzas of this poem, in verse, verses 1 to 19. Do you see how Solomon starts by addressing his son in verse 1, if you look, page 639, he says, my son. Then from verse 6, he addresses not his son, but he says, you sluggard. And then in verse 12, he's no longer addressing him in the second person, but in the third person, some, some words about the scoundrel and the villain who stirs up dissension. It's as if there's still hope for his son in verses 1 to 5, still hope from the sluggard who can learn from the ant. But by the third stanza, there is only the warning of destruction. Let's see how that works in these <clears throat> verses then. So first of all, a warning to those who are irresponsible. Verses 1 to 5. Have a look at that. If you look at those verses 1 to 5, it, it seems like quite a specific situation that Solomon has in mind. A situation where you've put up security for a friend. Maybe they were in trouble, they needed a loan, and you have agreed to provide the security for that loan. And you might think, well, hang on, what, what, what's wrong with that? And in one sense, surely nothing is wrong with providing security for a friend. If that's what you want to do, it's your money. But it seems that this is a rash decision. You've signed on the dotted line, and then you've realized that now your home is at risk. And it all depends on the ability of your friend to pay back the creditor. And Solomon is saying, that is not wise. It's not sensible to put your life on the line in that way. Do whatever you can to get out of it. Actually, Proverbs has a lot to say about wealth and about debt. Here are a couple of examples. Chapter 22, verse 26. Do not be a man who strikes hands in pledge, who puts up security for debts. Then verse 7 in the same chapter. The rich rule over the poor. And the borrower becomes the lender's slave. With our free and easy access to credit, perhaps we know more in this generation about debt than any previous. The, the average UK adult owes £8,000 on top of any mortgage they might have. And of course that average number is only going to rise with student debt, now the complete norm for young people. Debt that is out of control or unmanaged has huge psychological effects that's well known isn't it and that, and that may be part of why Solomon pleads with his son in this way remember his son is not looking back on mistakes he's looking forward to the future and and Solomon is saying to him look debt will cripple you don't be a fool and make promises you can't keep he talks particularly about co-signing on a loan think very carefully before walking into an arrangement where you risk your property for someone else who for whatever reason is regarded as untrustworthy by a bank and needing that additional security. Could it be that actually underneath this, this is really about a fear of man versus fear of God? Because what would motivate somebody to do this kind of thing? You can't think, well, it's a silly thing to do, isn't it? If the bank's already turned them down, it requires additional security, and you're willing to help. Well, why would, why would someone do that? Well, it's probably something to do with wanting something from them, fearing them. Maybe they will accept me. Maybe they will like me if I do this. What will they say if I say no? That's fearing man instead of God, isn't it? Which is what Proverbs consistently calls us to. And actually, there are all kinds of horror stories out there, aren't there, about people losing everything through this kind of thing. Maybe parents co-signing a loan for a child and it all goes wrong. Debt will ruin you. Think very carefully, Solomon is saying. And if you find yourself in a situation where your livelihood is on the line, 
do everything you can to get out. Of course, the point is that very often by the time you get to verse 3, it's too late. You can't free yourself. You're stuck. For us today, we have great uh, charities that, that we can turn to, like Christians Against Poverty, who will intercede with creditors and help people escape. But they would acknowledge as much as anyone that financial debt is only a picture of the much deeper debt that every human being owes to the God who made us. See, when we, when we spend beyond our means, is it because we're struggling to trust God in the way the second reading that we heard from Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount calls us to do? To trust that he will provide for us in his timing. Remember the Israelites in the desert. They had the manna that God provided miraculously for them each day. But when they tried to gather more than one day's worth, what happened to them, those Israelites? Well, it went bad. It went moldy. They weren't able to keep more than a day's worth. God wanted them to trust him one day at a time. That was the lesson he was teaching them. What does our approach to money say about our deeper heart issues with God? You see, our hearts so easily deceive us. William Wilberforce put it like this. I continually find it necessary to guard against that natural love of wealth and grandeur which prompts us always, when we come to apply our general doctrine to our own case, to claim an exception. So we, we, we're able to point to spot where other people are being foolish with money or spending money in, in unwise ways. It's easy to say that, isn't it? It's easy to spend other people's money wisely. Hard to, to do that with our own. And the reason we're like that is our hearts so easily look for security and status in things instead of in the God who made us. And so when we struggle with money or we struggle with debt, actually it's, a, it's just a picture of a deeper struggle, a deeper debt that we owe to the God who made us. Because when it comes to our debt, if you look at verse, look at verse 5, can we free ourselves like a, a gazelle from the hand of the hunter or like a bird from the snare of the fowler, as Solomon says here? Can we do that with our debt to God? We can't. We're stuck. We've carefully constructed a prison cell around ourselves, brick by brick, including a lockable door. And when we finally finish building this cell, we take the key and we throw it out of the barred window and we're locked in. There's nothing we can do and it's our fault. But that is why Jesus came. To rescue, to break into that prison, to set us free. Maybe we are irresponsible with our money, with our promises. But if we're feeling like that today, if we're living with the effects of poor decisions financially or, or spiritually in our debt to God, go to Jesus at the cross. Find one who died for our irresponsibility. Find in him the wisdom to live life trusting God. That is the first area of our lives that Solomon highlights here, the details. Secondly, a warning then to those who are idle, verses 6 to 11. These are some of the more well-known phrases and images in Proverbs. Go to the ant, you sluggard. It's brilliant, isn't it? Brilliant language. The sluggard says things like this. Well, at least if I stay in bed all day... I can't fall into folly. 
you know, I'm not sinning because I'm not technically doing anything at all. So I'll just stay here. He or she won't start things. You know, it just a little sleep, a little slumber. I'm just going to have a nap. A little folding of the hands to rest. I'll just press sleep on my alarm clock one more time. We've been there. Sue had a little uh, look at me as we read these verses a few moments ago. The sluggard appears later in the, in, in the book as well. So um, in, in those verses later on, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. It's a great image, isn't it? The door turning. Oh, look, he's moving. It's turning. Something's happening. He's going to get up. Oh, no, he's just turning over for a bit more sleep. Actually, there's a sluggard in all of us, if we're honest, isn't there? What are we putting off? Maybe a crucial decision that needs to be made. Maybe a conversation that needs to be had. Is there a a non-Christian friend? Is there a family member to whom we've just been continually putting off talking? I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. I'll do it next year. The sluggard won't start things. But the sluggard won't finish things either. So... Uh, Chapter 26, verse 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but he's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. Oh, look, he's moving. There's definitely some action here. Finally, he's bothered to get up to eat, but, oh, no, he's fallen asleep at the table. The sluggard does occasionally start doing things, but his life is littered with projects begun and never finished. Washing up, DIY, books, He won't start things, he won't finish things, and then he won't face things. For every task, there is a perfect excuse. So again, chapter 26, verse 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. You know, I'd better stay in bed in case I meet that lion. We tend to think of sin as consciously breaking a commandment, doing something wrong, don't we? Sort of breaking the rules, that's the sort of default way of thinking about sin but actually the sluggard is sinning passively through inaction through inactivity through idleness but remember the end says Solomon in the end idleness will lead to poverty to disaster the thing is it's easy to see the sluggard in other people isn't it in our families in our children perhaps but it's just as often present and dangerous in all of us, in different ways, in settling for comfort over challenge, for security over sacrifice. The author, Raymond Ortland, puts it like this. Your, your danger and mine is not that we become criminals, but rather that we become respectable, decent, commonplace, mediocre Christians. He's writing in the 20th century. He says, the 20th century temptations that really sap our spiritual power are the television, banana cream pie, the easy chair, and the credit card. What would the equivalents be in the 21st century today? Is it social media, video games, whatever it might be? He continues, the Christian wins or loses in those seemingly innocent little moments of decision. Lord, make my life a miracle. Do you see what he's saying? Have we been settling for a little without even noticing it? What is it that holds us back in those everyday moments of decision? 
For some, it might be fretting and, and worrying, just as we heard in, in the second reading again. Worrying about the future can paralyze the present. You know, I can't make the decision because I can't trust God with the future, is what we're saying. Now, Solomon emphasizes the negatives here of what happens to the sluggard, but the gospel also gives us the positives of what happens when we take a risk and we get out there and we serve in whatever way it is. And we make that decision. Should I marry him or her? Should I take the new job? Should I speak to my friend about Jesus? Maybe I'll make the wrong decision. Maybe I should just stay as I am. It's a risk. Maybe it's better to, to play it safe. But the gospel means that we're free to take those risks. Not selfish risks, not godless risks, but godly, Jesus-glorified risks. Because our sin is paid for. We're forgiven. If we mess it up, our sin is covered. Maybe we've grown up with people around us wagging their fingers and saying, you've got that wrong, that's not good enough, you shouldn't have done it that way. And sometimes that will have been true but sometimes not. But in the gospel, God says to us in Christ, though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. He's a God of fresh starts. And he meets us in the mess we are in now, not just in order to point out what we did wrong all the way, all the way back then, but he meets us in the mess we're in now, however we got here, and he will do that tomorrow. If that's where we find ourselves then through a decision we make today. So maybe we need to hear Solomon's encouragement. If the sluggard in you is stopping you making a decision today, you're imagining the lion in the street and it's easier just to stay in bed. Let Solomon encourage you to, to pray, to talk it over with a friend and then to get on with it. Because indecision is a decision in itself, isn't it? And there will come a day when it's too late to act. So then a warning for those who are irresponsible, those who are idle, and then finally the inharmonious. Here in verse 12 is the scoundrel and the villain. And he's actually got one up on the sluggard, hasn't he? Because he's made it out of bed this morning. His body is not tossing and turning under the covers all morning. His body isn't being employed in all kinds of activity. Can you see he's got a corrupt mouth? Verse 13, he's using his eyes, his feet, his fingers for secretive signaling. His heart is plotting evil. He's stirring up dissension, arguments. And it's the same again in, in verses 16 to 19. Do you see all the body parts, eyes, tongue, hands, heart, feet, pouring out lies and stirring up dissension? There's a particular emphasis here on communication the way we use our bodies to interact with the world around us. Proverbs has lots to say about the power of words. Do you know that saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me? you know that saying? It's not in Proverbs, because it's utter nonsense. Isn't that true? You know, many of us will never have punched anyone in our lives, not properly, We've never gotten a fight, never headbutted another human being. But we will have used our tongue to inflict incalculable damage on others. Maybe even just on those who are closest to us, our families, our loved ones. Words can deeply hurt. 
Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We heard last week about the seriousness of adultery, but perhaps for some of us, gossip is more of a temptation, more of a blind spot. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Chapter 18, verse 8. Gossip destroys relationships. It destroys families. It destroys churches. It's not just about passing gossip on. It's listening to it in the first place. Chapter 17, verse 4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. You know, how easy is it to think, well, I'm not saying anything. I'm just listening while my friend passes on this choice piece of information about somebody else who's not in the conversation. If anyone's in the wrong, it's my friend. It's not me. I'm just listening. But when we listen and we don't walk away or we don't stop the conversation in some way, we are playing a part in stirring up dissension and unity and disunity so chapter 26 verse 20 without wood a fire goes out without gossip a quarrel dies down now of course the tongue can be used for evil but it can also be used for good the tongue of the wise brings healing 1218 a gentle answer turns away wrath 15:1. how are we using our tongues this morning, to build up in love or to tear down in anger. Let's be those who use our tongues to encourage each other, like we were hearing a couple of weeks ago. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain, his brother's is sure. See, that is what church is for, to build up, <clears throat> to encourage each other. We're not to be Christians alone, but Christians united with one another, using our tongues not for dissension, but for unity. Let's not underestimate the power of words to build up or tear down in our families, our homes, our workplaces. So it is then in the mundane, it is in the everyday, the commonplace, the sandwich moments that the Christian life is lived and won or lost. Jesus has paid the debt for sin when we get it wrong and we mess up. But he now calls us to use the lives he's given us, not in idleness, but in love and service. So is Jesus Lord in the details of our lives, because if he does not rule the details, he does not rule at all. Let's take a moment now as we finish to reflect in a, in a moment of quiet on our own response to this. And I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, as we reflect on these words and we 
reflect on our lives, the day ahead, the week ahead, we think of all those moments. Think of meal times, times travelling, commuting, of chance encounters with people. Think of the way that we spend our time, how we relax, how we switch off, where our minds takes us in daydreams, what we choose to read, how we speak to our families and one another. In all these things and more, Heavenly Father, we pray that we will be conscious of you walking with us, that we would not be ashamed to confess our sin in these areas because we know that in Jesus we have new life, a fresh start. But though our skins are, sins are as scarlet, you made them white as snow. Help us today to put our trust in Jesus and live lives not of idleness, but of love and service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in response to God's word, we're going to sing this song, which is simply a hymn of praise to God for who he is, for all that he's done for us, the God who is, who is Lord over the whole world and over all areas of our lives. Let's stand and sing.